Let me begin today's message with a quote from Pastor Mark Dever, who pastors in Washington, D.C. He said this, a small difference in trajectory can make a big difference in destination. Uh, you know what I mean. If you've ever been traveling down 78 and you accidentally missed the turn for 287, you know that you're going to be canceling your next appointment, right? As you uh, travel around 15 more minutes to try to figure out your way back uh, towards the highway. Or maybe you've seen those calculations that NASA gives where if they're just like a half a degree off and they're headed to Mars, uh, they miss the planet by like 100,000 miles or something like that. A small difference in trajectory can make a big difference in destination. Friends, sin often begins with what seems like a small difference in trajectory. A little allowance for this habit or a brushing away of the seriousness of this shortcoming, not addressing a small ethical failure in my life, those small changes here or there can greatly affect the destination of your entire life. Uh, we've been studying the book of Kings, and I think this principle is really clear. As the people of Israel have made choices, little by little, that have caused them to look like all the other nations, uh, but those uh, choices didn't happen overnight. They were gradual. I wonder if you're here this morning and uh, uh, you're a Christian, but you've made some choices in your life that have been uh, changing your trajectory a little bit, and you're wondering how to get back on course. Or maybe you're here today and you're not yet a believer, you're certainly welcome here, but you're concerned that your life isn't headed in the direction that you would like it to either. Or perhaps you're here and you're uh, specifically worried about a specific trajectory, maybe the trajectory of our entire nation, wondering if we're headed in the wrong direction. And you're wondering, how do we correct uh, course? Uh, if you're asking those kinds of questions, then the text here is, is just for you. At this point in our study of the books of First and Second Kings, uh, we have uh, realized that Israel in the north uh, is gone now forever. They have eroded away their spiritual vibrancy little by little until they are now in exile. And Judah in the south is, is the only tribe that's left. We pick up the uh, study in 2 Kings chapter 18. If you have your Bible, please turn there with me. You'll find a king whose name was Hezekiah, whose name means the Lord strengthens. He reigned from 715 B.C. to 687 B.C. He's famous for his underground tunnel, which he dug in order to bring water supply into the city and protect them from siege warfare. He's one of the few good kings in the Bible. Uh, today in our text, we're going to see that he faces two different crises and we're going to see a shift in the trajectory of his entire life that will change not only him, but the nation of Israel forever. We're going to see three distinct movements to this text as I'm going to organize the message around the three main speeches in the narrative. Uh, we're going to see the word of adversity, and then we're going to see the word of prayer, and then thirdly, we'll see the last word from the Lord himself. I actually want to look at these two different stories in his life on purpose because I want you to see that these, these three stages happen in both of those stories and they become almost a predictable pattern, a rubric, rubric that we can use in our own lives to help us recognize these three stages when they do come in our life as well. So that's where we're headed and uh, why don't we ask God for his help, shall we? Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, we bow for a moment thanking you. I thank you for preserving this ancient text where we can find relevant lessons for our lives right now and today. I thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters. Perhaps they're sitting out here and they're not really facing much adversity and we rejoice with them, uh, but I pray that we would all listen because we might need this message tomorrow. I pray also for my other brothers and sisters who are right now facing a crisis moment. 
I pray that you'd help us to learn to respond in a way that doesn't shift our trajectory into the wrong direction, but rather help us to respond in a way that shifts our trajectory in the right direction, in a way that is toward you and pleasing to you. We ask all of this, of course, in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. A little bit of background on King Hezekiah shows up in chapter 18, verse 1. As we get started this morning, we see this amazing man of God. It says, in the third year of Hosea, remember him, the king of Israel, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, began to reign. Verse 3, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Pause there. Notice, first of all, Hezekiah is compared with King David, Israel's greatest king. Notice also that he's drawing out one of the major themes in the book of Kings, uh, the theme of the preservation of the line of David because of the covenant that God had made with David. The text goes on to describe him further in verse 5. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord. He did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. Did you catch those three commendations there? First, he held fast to the Lord. Secondly, he did not depart from following him. Third, he kept the commandments. Imagine that on your tombstone. This is Hezekiah. Everything is going well. He has torn down the high places. He has torn down the idols. And I think that's exactly why we get to movement number one, the word of adversity. Friends, the enemy takes notice when you are living for the Lord. The enemy notices when you tear down the idols in your life. The enemy takes notice when you have victories in your life over your sin. You now create a target on your back. You are a high-value target for the enemy. When you start getting serious about serving the Lord, which is what Hezekiah did here, the enemy comes in like a flood. What Hezekiah did was good and right and holy. That's exactly why the enemy steps in with adversity. Verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. King Sennacherib was the most powerful ruler in the world at that time. He was the king of Assyria. We talked about them last week. Pastor Bob did a good job explaining the, the viciousness of the Assyrian Empire. They conquered the entire northern kingdom of Israel about 10 years prior to this text that we're looking at today. Now here they are 10 years later going after the south, setting their sights on King Hezekiah, and of course eventually they're going to keep going until they set their sights on the crown jewel of the people of God, the very city of Jerusalem. As a modern-day example, maybe you could just picture the fact that Assyria was to the nation of Judah uh, what Russia is today to the nation of Ukraine. Just a, a large, long-standing, neighboring nation that was a constant political and military threat. As Assyria was a superpower, and they were also a, a, a political bully. Assyria was vicious. One commentator said they cut down cities and the people, and people the way a farmer cuts down grass. So Sennacherib sends some of his top guys down to Jerusalem, and, and he wants to give them a message. It shows up in verse 19. Look, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Implied answer, the Lord. Verse 25. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? 
The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. The audacity of this statement. Now, you got a picture of the scene here. Uh, these Assyrian officials are outside of the city walls, essentially talking smack in what was an ancient political negotiation. And they're saying, hey, we're bigger than you, we're stronger than you, we're more powerful than you, we're expanding, you're shrinking, and you're in trouble. You have no hope, not even in your God. After all, your God is the one who sent us to come and destroy you. These guys and their big mouths are frightening the cities of Jerusalem, which is why some of Hezekiah's men make a request in verse 26. Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. You're scaring the children. This request emboldens the enemy even more, though. Verse 27, but the commander replied, was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their excrement and drink their own urine? I'll take that as a no. I'm glad the kids are dismissed already. Some of you thought that uh, today's uh, political rhetoric has gone uh, downhill. Back in the days of siege warfare, it was pretty ruthless. Sometimes the enemy can be nasty. The rhetoric continues and moves towards blasphemy in verse 28. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Dropping down to 33, has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? 35, who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Pause. Have you ever received a word of adversity? A crisis in your life that comes upon you like a flood, you know that you can't fix it. Maybe it's a physical crisis, maybe it's a financial crisis, maybe it's a, it's a marriage crisis, maybe it's a health crisis, maybe it's a national crisis. Have you ever received a word of adversity in your life? Our family heard our own word of adversity on March 20th, 2020, earlier this year, when my wife and I drove her dad, my father-in-law, to the ER after he was displaying a fever and some of the common symptoms of COVID-19. Uh, he was checked in, and just after a few days, uh, things went downhill fast. He was sedated, he was intubated, he was put on a ventilator, and we began to become extremely despondent. You see, Julie had just lost her mom to cancer just a few months prior, and so this turn of events hit our family really hard. We were desperate. We felt like we got hit by a truck. The wind just was knocked out of us. This was quite the word of adversity. How about you? What word of adversity are you facing today? And what will you do? This leads us to movement two, the word of prayer. Friends, when you face adversity, you have two choices. You can panic or you can pray. Now, one of those things is going to lead you wrong, and one of those things is going to lead you right. One of those things is going to lead you into all kinds of wrong places and decisions, and the other one of those things is going to lead you to the very source of the power of God himself. 
the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, through prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So what will you do when you face your word of adversity? Will you panic and become anxiety-stricken, or will you drop down on your knees and ask God to intervene? Verse 14, Hezekiah, see what happens is his men uh, gather together a letter and bring him this letter from the enemy. Okay, so skipping, skipping a little bit into chapter 19, verse 14, it says, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. I really appreciate the raw authenticity of this scene. Can you just imagine this guy in the temple with a piece of paper, just spreading it out before God's presence on his knees, weeping and praying? He has nowhere else to turn in his moment of adversity. He goes to the very temple of God. He brings this letter with him. He says, God, I got this letter. And he spreads it out right in the presence of the Lord, prostrate in his presence, and asks for him to intervene because of his mercy. It reminds me of this flag. Have you seen this? this? During the American Revolution, I'll put it up on the screen here, one of the flags which flew over George Washington's Navy was this white flag with a green pine tree with this motto, an appeal to heaven. It was Washington's way of acknowledging his need for and the nation's desperation for the God of heaven to intervene on their behalf in the war. Here's Hezekiah. We have a record of the words of his prayer Take a look. It says, Hezekiah says, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib. The word Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. His prayer goes on, 17. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. But now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand. Why? So that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Hezekiah understood how to pray, didn't he? This wasn't just, Lord, bless the food. This wasn't just, Lord, you know, show me some grace. Hezekiah goes, God, your name. God, your glory is at stake here. Notice the motivation in verse 19 again. So that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, alone are God. And we know that this prayer, which is purposeful and doxological, he prays for God's glory. We know that God loves to hear these kinds of prayers. Why? Because God tells us that he is most committed to his own glory. And so when we pray toward the ends that God is most committed to, those kinds of prayers get his attention. Friends, can I just ask you to evaluate the nature of your own prayers? If you want to learn to pray, tell God how he's going to get the glory for what will happen if he answers your prayer. Tell him all of the good things you believe will come, spiritually speaking, as a result of him saying yes to your prayer. Now be careful with this. 
You know, as a pastor, I know a lot of people in the hospital make promises to God that they end up not keeping. Lord, if you do this for me this one last time, then I promise uh, to turn my life over to you, but then after they're well, they forget God. Don't do that. But if your words are genuine, if you're authentically saying, God, these are my promises, this is what I hope, this is what I want from you, this is what I want from my life, then go ahead and tell him. You know why? He's listening. That's the difference between our God and all the other gods. He actually is listening when we pray. That's what Hezekiah does. Now, if we were all watching TV, I just want to push pause. I want to push pause on this whole story. I know we're in the middle of the story. He's in the temple. He's got this letter in God's presence. What's going to happen? Okay, just hold on. Hold on right there. Before I finish this story, I, I want to tell you where I think Hezekiah learned to pray like this. Because before he had to deal with this very public word of adversity, Hezekiah had to deal with a very private, personal word of adversity first. So I want to jump ahead to 2 Kings chapter 20, but in jumping ahead, you need to know that we're actually going back in time. See, 2 Kings chapter 20 is a flashback to a time that occurred earlier in Hezekiah's life, long before all this political turmoil took place. Let me show you what happened in Hezekiah's life earlier, before all of this. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. It says, in those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. See what I'm saying? This is not the first time that Hezekiah received a word of adversity. Right here, he was receiving his own crisis moment. This is an irreversible situation. It's terminal. He's mortally ill. Isaiah the prophet comes to him and gives him this message. You're not going to make it through this one, Hezekiah. This cannot be fixed. There are no solutions. There is no hope. And what's worse, it is the Lord who says it's terminal. It's bad enough if a person says it, a doctor says it. But here, you get a word from the Lord himself. I mean, where, where do you go that? When God pronounces you terminal, where can you turn? Well, look carefully at what Hezekiah chooses to do. Catch every word of this next verse, too. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and listened to his prayer. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now, I want you to know that the Bible does not condemn him here for his tears, and neither should we. Let me ask you, have you ever had a moment like this where you received this kind of devastating personal news? I was recently having a conversation this week with somebody in our church who had a very hard medical diagnosis, and he said, Pastor David, it hits you like a hockey check when you get news like that. So true. I, going back to my father-in-law, for, for 47 days he was in the hospital, and we wept, and we cried, and we prayed, and we read Scripture at least five different times, palliative care called us, telling us they think it's time for us to let him go. They said his lungs, they're like mush. 
We just weren't ready. Can, can you just please give us some more time? I'm sure they thought we were nuts. I'm convinced that the doctors took turns calling our family because they're like, you want to talk to the crazy miracle family today? Because we can't really seem to break through to them. Anybody else want to talk to the Henschels? Any volunteers? So we just would not give, every night we would go to the hospital parking lot and just pray for a few hours every single night. Kids too, everybody, we're going to pray. We call it PLP, parking lot prayer. Every night, 47 days, we would go to the hospital. Many of you prayed along with us there. We're so very grateful, especially on those bad days. You know, Warren Wearsby says this, when the outlook is bleak, try the uplook. Man, that's wise advice. We, we came up with this acronym, PUSH, P-U-S-H, pray until something happens. We just, we just not give up. And let me tell you something, my wife and my kids, they can pray. And our church family, we can pray. We will pray with you through that. And so we just persisted. And I think that, that's Hezekiah right here. He just won't give up. He's praying. He's crying. Incidentally, we have the entire prayer that he records here in another place in Scripture. The book of Isaiah, chapter 38, records his entire prayer. I would encourage you in your own devotional time to check out every word of that prayer. It's so, so amazing. But I want you to look here in 2 Kings at the words that the writer here records for us. It's kind of a summary. He says this, look, God, I want you to remember something. I've walked with you. I've lived to please you. That's Hezekiah's prayer. God, remember me. Not because God can forget. That's not possible. So, God had made promises in the Old Testament, particularly to the Old Testament kings, saying, if you will walk before me and live for me and obey me, then I will bless you you're going in and you're coming out from the top of your head to the sole of your feet. I will bless you with many, many blessings. The book of Deuteronomy gives these promises to the king of Israel. And so Hezekiah is cashing in. Hezekiah, Hezekiah says, God, I want you to check my credit report. You know what a credit report is, right? When you apply for a loan, they check your credit report. Why? Because how your credit looks determines whether or not the bank is going to loan you something for the future. Hezekiah says, God, I want you to check my credit report on this one. The time has come where I'm going to ask you to remember me, and I want you to also remember the promises that you gave to us, the kings. Then after he prays, guys, verse 4 is just unbelievable. Look at it. It says, before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, Isaiah, a second time. It says, go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. Wow. Can you imagine this moment right here? He's there praying, and all of a sudden he hears footsteps coming down the hall. Isaiah's coming back. And look at what he says. God says, number one, I've heard your words, but number two, I also saw your heart. I saw your tears. Friends, the God of the Bible actually has feelings. The Bible regularly talks about God's feelings, his anger, his joy, his compassion. We see the emotional side of God. We particularly see this in the life of Jesus Christ. God feels deeply, and he is touched by his son, Hezekiah. Now, some people have fake tears, right? Crocodile tears. They use their tears to manipulate other people to get something from them that they want. That's not what we're talking about here. God sees these tears as genuine. God says, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. And friends, that's good news. That means God hears your prayer. 
And God sees your tears also. And then he drops the big one. And I will heal you. And I will heal you. Friends, God can do that. God can do that. One of the things we would do in the car for parking lot prayers, we would listen to these songs and we would sing songs about God's healing power. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, that is who you are, that is who you are. And we would just remind God of who he's revealed himself to be, the God who heals. Can you imagine what these words must have felt like for Hezekiah right here? Do you, do you realize what just happened in the text? It appears to me as if God changed his mind. Isn't that what just happened? God says, Isaiah, go back and tell him, I changed my mind. You got a theological category for this? What in the world? This is a major theological problem. Malachi says, I, the Lord, do not change. He's immutable. But we have to somehow make sense of this because of the consistency of God and the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. But yet regularly in the Bible, there's great mystery here in that God works around contingencies, and God also uses secondary causes, and one of those secondary causes that he chooses to use is our prayers, which just might blow your mind. In other words, God knows all the possibilities of what could happen, and he also knows what will happen, and at times he burdens other human beings to pray for what he wants to happen. But the prayers are effective, right? James says you have not because you ask not. That means prayer actually causes things. That means prayer causes things to happen that wouldn't happen if you didn't pray, right? The verse doesn't mean that well, if you pray, that's nice, but God's going to do his thing anyway. The verse doesn't mean the opposite of what James says. It says you have not because you ask not. Now, God in his sovereignty, in the great mystery of his sovereignty, can fold in your prayers into his causal plan, but your prayers matter. Hezekiah's prayer mattered. It's biblical. We see this at other times in the Bible, right? God told Jonah, go tell them in 40 days they will be destroyed. Why say 40 days if it wasn't certain? God created this window, and if inside the window things circumstantially would change with those people, then God reserves the right in his, host, in his own sovereignty to change direction here. See, in, this story, in that story, repentance occurred, and then that triggered God's grace. In this story, prayer occurred, and that triggered God's answer. What is prayer? Prayer is many things, but one of the definitions I like is that prayer is calling for heavenly interference in your earthly situation. Does anybody in here today need heavenly interference in their earthly situation? So Hezekiah prays. God intervenes. Good news. God tells Hezekiah, I'm going to give you 15 more years. T take a look at this, uh, th this further explanation by Isaiah in the next passage. Go ahead and put the next slide up there. It says, um, on the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. I want you to notice something there. There is a purpose for Hezekiah's healing. Did you see that? 
He says, I'm going to heal you for a reason. It's for a purpose. I'm going to deliver you. Why? Because I've got more for you to do. I've got something for my city's sake here. I've got something for my servant David's sake that I want you to do. And God actually makes him a promise right there on the screen that he will stand against the king of Assyria. Did you catch the promise? Hezekiah took it to the bank. If God is going to intervene in our lives through prayer, it is always going to be purposeful. This moment in Hezekiah's life was a watershed for the rest of his life. See, God had done something. God had shifted something. Remember the quote with which I began? Let me put it up there again. A small difference in trajectory can make a big difference in destination. The trajectory shift here in Hezekiah's life is not a negative shift. It's a positive shift in the right direction. He has this encounter with God in prayer that changes his entire life forever and also changes the life of the nation. He would never be the same and they would never be the same as a result of what he went through. Now, now we can fast forward and change the channel back to where we were where we see that Hezekiah learned this lesson in his personal life and then applied the principles of this lesson in his more public and national life. So we've seen movement one, the word of adversity. We've seen movement two, the word of prayer. Now we move to movement three, the last word from the Lord himself. The last word from the Lord himself. Remember where we left off, right? The boastful enemy was talking smack. Hezekiah is in the temple with the piece of paper. He spreads it all out before God's presence, and he prays, right? Remember that? He's weeping bitterly. Now, on the world stage, Hezekiah is going to ask God to intervene today as he did in the past, and once again, God sends word through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 19, verse 20. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I have heard your prayer. Does this sound familiar? It's like deja vu all over again. I have heard your prayer. Moving on. And I will defend this city and save it. Why? For the sake and for the sake of my son, for, for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. I have heard your prayer, Hezekiah. The story goes on to conclude in verse 35. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death how many? 185,000 in the Assyrian camp? When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. God gives an amazing answer to prayer for the second time in Hezekiah's life. 185,000. How did he do that? It says with one angel. People speculate, historians say maybe there was a massive plague, maybe the bubonic plague came in the camp, maybe rats came in or something like that. I don't know. Maybe that was the earthly side. I don't know. But all we know here is the divine side. And the scriptures tell us that God saved them and it was an angel. So what do we learn from this story? I think we learn that there's a pattern. Take a look at this outline again. There's a pattern that I think, brothers and sisters, we need to follow. That when we face the word of adversity that will inevitably come, it's not if, it when, when it inevitably comes in your life, we need to respond appropriately, and the way that we respond appropriately is with the word of prayer. And then we need to wait 
for the last word from the Lord himself. Now, you might be out there kind of skeptical saying, you know, Pastor Dave sounds nice, looks good that God intervened here, but it seems like he doesn't always intervene. Sometimes, let's be honest, he does allow terrible adversity. Now, I know there's some mystery involved here, and I don't, you know, suppose that I can understand all of the sovereignty of God, but the scriptures teach us that there are three possible outcomes for the children of God in such situations, and I say this with all sensitivity. The first outcome is that sometimes God keeps us from adversity. And we don't even know how often God in his grace does that for us, but it probably happens countless times in our lives that he's placed, placed his hedge of protection over us and says to the enemy, you can go this far but no farther, and God protects you. He may have even protected you on the road today from a car accident before church. Who knows? He keeps us from much adversity. That's option one. Option two is that sometimes God chooses to keep us through adversity. Sometimes God will have us go through things to teach us things that we need to learn. We need to realize that God is not always committed to our comfort. He is most primarily committed to our character. And he's committed to sanctifying us and molding us and shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ. And sometimes trials are the means by which he uses to do so. And then third, sometimes he uses adversity to deliver us to himself. We know throughout the scriptures and throughout church history that for every Hezekiah who got healed... There were countless others who God took to heaven. And we must trust in his sovereign plan. And so as a child of God, I acknowledge that there are three possible outcomes. He can keep us from adversity, he could keep us through adversity, or he could choose to use that adversity to deliver us into his very presence. But we always have the opportunity to glorify him and to trust in his sovereign plan. Which brings me to you. What is that situation of adversity that you're facing in your life? Where do you need God to intervene in your life today? Maybe some of you today are facing your own Hezekiah moment. Maybe you're facing a situation that seems hopeless, that seems irreversible, that seems like there is no other way out. Let me encourage you to take that word of adversity from the enemy and spread it into the very presence of the Lord himself and get down on your knees and wait for the last word from God Almighty. You say, Pastor Dave, what if it doesn't happen? What if it does happen? And what if God wants you to pray to make it happen? Let me finish with our story. After much prayer and fasting for my father-in-law, and many of you prayed with us, and we're so, so thankful. We got told time and time again he wasn't going to make it. And then something crazy happened on Easter weekend. On Good Friday at 3 p.m., he started moving around. I said, Julie, it's, it's Good Friday, 3 p.m. All right? This just feels weird. I know it seems hopeless, but it's Easter weekend. Could we just hold on? And then late on Easter Sunday, we... Regularly would talk to the doctors every day, and I'll never forget what the doctor told my wife with this particular call, with his thick Ukrainian accent. You know, Julie asked him, how's dad today? And he said, he's doing quite well, actually. He's off the ventilator. He had, suddenly, he had these real signs of immediate and unexpected improvement, unlike all of the other patients in the ICU. The celebration in our house erupted with joy. We needed a minute. Friends, 
I don't suppose that I understand all of the choices of God and the sovereignty of God, but you will never be able to convince me that God did not perform an absolute miracle in my family on Easter weekend this year. You'll never be able to convince me of that. Soon he was released from the hospital. He was back home recovering. Just recently we had the final follow-up with the pulmonologist. Did all kinds of tests on his lungs. These are the same people that told us his lungs are mush. And the doctor calls my wife while he's there in the office on the phone and he says, I'm here with your father. Oh, good. How's everything? He's totally normal. Like nothing ever happened. Night and day. It's like living with our own personal Hezekiah. I don't even know that I've figured out all that God has done in our family this year because of this amazing miracle. I, I'm still working on it. Have patience with me. But I, I, I sat down recently with Julie and I said, you know, God made a shift in our whole family this year in the sense that he shifted something in the heavenly realms. He put us on a different course, a different trajectory. And as a result, this will not just affect his future, but it will affect our future forever and my kids' future forever because they saw what happened. And you can't ever take that away from them. And all I can say is the same thing with which I began this message. Let me put it up on the screen one more time. A small difference in trajectory can make a big difference in destination. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here today and perhaps struggling and facing their own word of adversity and it seems hopeless and it seems irreversible and it seems helpless. And Father, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you and so the outlook is bleak, but Lord, we're gonna try the uplook. We're gonna look to heaven and we're gonna ask that you hear our prayers and we're gonna ask that you see our tears. And Lord, I pray that you would intervene in the heavenlies. I pray that you'd show yourself strong on our behalf. I pray that we would get a taste of your power, a taste of the fact that you're real and that you're listening to us when we pray and that you care and you know every detail of our lives. And so, Lord, for those of us who need comfort, I pray that you'd provide comfort from on high. For those of us who need healing, I pray that you would break through with your awesome and majestic power. For those of us who need a word of encouragement from you, God, I pray that they would know specifically how much you care and love them. We turn our attention and turn our eyes on you, the way maker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper, the light in the darkness. For God, that is who you are. That is who you are. Lord, help us to look to you with eyes of faith now and take our word of adversity, turn it into our word of prayer, and trust you that the last word will come from the Lord himself. I ask that for Christ's sake and for his reputation. Amen.